We're going to continue in this series, Undercover, and there's a graphic that they can put up. I know we got things in the way right now, but that's okay. Um, we started a series several weeks ago. We had a break last week. Um, uh, Rob and Mary Grinley were, if you were not here, get that message. Uh, you can get it by way of podcast. You can get it by the CDs in the bookstore. But listen to that message of Rob Grinley's because it is so right on. It also is really what I'm hearing God saying to the churches today. Whether the churches are listening or not, I don't know. So we're talking about authority. And here's our key verse verses. But I'm going to do it in the New Living Translation today to, uh, to give us a little different perspective. Everyone... See that first word? Every one. In Greek, that word means every one. <laughs> it means nobody's excluded. No exceptions. No pastors an exception. No political leaders an exception. No, 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 no president, CEOs an exception. No husbands an exception, no wives an exception. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. Why? Because all authority comes from God. All authority comes from God. The corollary of that is whatever we respond, however we respond to authority is how we're responding to God. Authority is one of God's paramount issues with mankind, with you and me, and we will see that this morning. Why? Verse 2. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they're not going to enjoy their life. No, that's not what it says. They will perish. How we handle authority is literally life and death. How we respond to authority is tied to our faith, it's tied to our worship, it's tied to everything we do that has to do with God, which is everything we do. Verse 3. Why? For authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right. <laughs> Ever driving along, just not minding your business, just, you know, hopefully paying attention, and all of a sudden you go past a police officer sitting by the side of the road. What's the first thing you do? <gasps> How fast was I going? Fear grips your heart. And it's... I was going the speed limit, so we relax. If you were going over the speed limit, the fear stays there. You start looking in the room. Not that I've ever done this. I've been told by other people about this. And we look in the speed, we look in the rearview mirror. Did he see me? Did he see me? Did he see me? Did he see me? That's fear. Why? I wasn't a, I, there was no fear when I was going at the speed limit or under it. They're out there to protect us to, to force us to do what's safe and what's right. Why? Because we won't do it ourselves. Authority is there because we won't do what's right ourselves. Would you like to live without fear of authorities? Then simply do what's right and they will honor you. Now, I'm not saying there aren't 
people that do things wrong out there. I'm, this is what, the way God's ordained it to work. So police officers, government officials, the way God designed them, are there for our benefit. And if we do what's right, then they will honor you. Verse 4. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. And what do we have now? Our tendency is to resent authority. They, they interfere with what I want to do. But they've been put there by God for our protection so that they're a covering for us. The Bible talks about authority being a covering for us. And we think, we, because we have the world's idea of authority, that it's a covering protecting us from fun. No, it's protecting us from things we can't handle ourselves. And we'll see that more clearly today. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid. For they have the power to punish you. For they are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who were wrong. We'll stop there. Whenever I think of this, I think of a story I, I was told a long time ago. And I'm, I don't know if this was a true story. Um, it may be, because I'm thinking, never mind, doesn't matter. But uh, it was years ago when we were first saved and we were in a denominational church and a friend of mine was talking about his son and he said, um, we, we were in a church that had wooden pews and that wasn't a problem because the pastor only went 10 minutes. <laughs> and it was, they were, they were travel logs. And, um, and his little five-year-old started standing up on the pew and his father said, Son, sit down. And he didn't. He just stood up at the pew because he wanted to see and he wanted to be seen. And the father said to him a second time, Son, sit down. And now his voice got sterner. Son, I said, sit down. And the boy just kept looking around. Finally, the father got fed up. He said, Son, I said, sit down. And he takes his hand and he forces his son to sit down. And the little boy turns at him and says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. <laughs> so it isn't just what we do outwardly. It's what comes out of our heart. And what we're going to begin to look at today and then next week is our response to authority. And we're going to see it's either rebellion, obedience. It comes out of the heart. Now turn with me quickly to John chapter... 13. Very well-known verses. John chapter 13. This is in back in the, we're back in the New King James. Now this is a story about Jesus' last, last meeting with His disciples before He goes to the cross. And John chapter 13 verse 1 sets the stage. And then we're going to just go to verse 2. You may put it up there. Now, John 13, 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from, this, from the Father, to the, from, He should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That means to the limit. That clock's not working right up there. And if you want me to go too long, you better get the clock fixed. He, having loved them, t- his own, who were in the world, he loved them 
to the end. So he's sitting down with his disciples, the twelve, and he's about to wash their feet. He's about to prepare them to, 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 to then he's going to go through the last supper, what we call the last supper with them. But before that happens, look at the next verse says, and supper being ended, having eaten together, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's an astounding verse. This is saying that Satan has already put it into Judas's heart to betray Christ. Very significant verse that tells us that Judas didn't just do this on his own. Judas, didn't, Judas wasn't a betrayer from the beginning. We kind of have that image, well, Judas was the traitor. No, he wasn't. Remember who called Judas? Jesus did. Not only that, Judas has been one of the twelve. He sat under the teachings. He's done miracles. Remember Jesus on several times sent them out, two by two, including Judas, to lay hands on the sick and they'd recover, to, to cast out demons. So Judas has cast out demons. Jesus has given him the same authority he gave to Peter and to John and to Andrew and to Nathaniel and to Thaddeus, all the others. He's walked with him. He's seen with him. The miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 came at his hands as well as the other 11. So we can think, well, I'd never do something like this. I'm exempt because I'm a good Christian. I'm a faithful Christian. Judas thought he was too. So it wasn't that Judas went off track. Satan put into his heart the desire and drive to betray his Lord. This is why Proverbs warns us. Guard your heart. Not your neighbors, not your spouses. Guard your heart with all diligence. Because out of your heart flow the issues of life, life or death. And Satan, uh, Judas did not guard his heart. And as a result, the betrayal of the Son of God came out of Judas's heart. Now we know that was the plan of God, but that's the plan of God because God knows things before they happen. But Judas still had a choice. Now it doesn't tell us, but my own personal belief is that what happened to Judas is that Judas was one of the groups that, that was expecting the Messiah. In fact, they all did at one point. Their biggest issue, and I can't get too bogged down in this, their biggest issue that they had in Israel at the time was the Roman occupation. Rome had conquered Israel. And their presence was obvious because their guards, you've seen the movies, their guards were everywhere. Everywhere they turned. Their tax collectors, Rome had their own tax collectors, and they would use the Jewish tax collectors to collect their own taxes. So there was Roman oppression, and the Messiah comes along, and the, all the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament that the Jews knew so well were about how he was to deliver them from their bondage. But they thought it was political bondage, not spiritual bondage. 
So they were expecting the Messiah to break the bonds of Rome and set them free, which is in part why they didn't understand why he had to go to the cross. So I believe what happened is when Judas began to realize where this was headed, his own desire for what the Messiah was to do opened him up for Satan to sow in him the seeds of rebellion and to sow it in his heart. So we're going to look at how that happens. And to do that, we're going to look at several aspects of this. We're going to look at we're going to look at, at what is it he put in Jesus, Judas's heart. Because it says he, he put in his heart, he put in his heart to betray him. So to do that, let's go back and look at Satan's origin. So we're going to go back and look at Ezekiel 28. And I hope they have, there we go. Ezekiel 28. There's two basic prophecies. We're going to have a look now into heaven. There's not a whole lot that the Bible tells us about heaven. There's several places where we have brief insights into it, and this is one of us. Now, this is in a series of prophecies that God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, speaking to different kings. And in this case, it starts in chapter 27. It's called a lamentation or a crying over the, over the, over the prince of Tyre, which was, one of the, which was, a, uh, which was a, a Gentile nation just north of Israel. And, and so God's speaking against them, and in the beginning of chapter 28, He talks about, uh, speak, my, speak Ezekiel, this, this lamentation against the prince of Tyre. But now we go into verse 11, no, go back to verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation. That's a, 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 for the king of Tyre. Now he's talking about the king of Tyre. Very often in the Old Testament in prophecies, they'll have multiple layers of meaning. And in some of these cases, and the two we're going to look at this morning, there's a direct reference to the person, the authority on the earth that he's speaking to, in which case it was the king of Tyre the prince of Tyre. But behind these the princes, behind all, all authority, is a spiritual authority. And it's either a spiritual authority that comes from God or another spiritual authority. And this is what he's talking to here. So God is speaking not to the actual king of Tyre, but we're going to see who he was speaking to. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, the Lord God. Not one of several, the Lord God. We're going to see who he's talking about here. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Notice you were. Verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, the king of Tyre wasn't in Eden because he was alive then. So now we're beginning to see he's talking about some other authority. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx. We're going to read down through this and we're going to go back and break it down. The jasper, I don't know what all those things are, but they were beautiful. Sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes, we'll talk about that in a minute, were prepared for you on the day that you were created. Go to the next verse. The day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub who covers. Now the king of Tyre wasn't a cherub. By the way, cherubs are not these cute little things that you see sometimes in pictures with halos around them. Cute little, you know, little babies. No, these are powerful angels. Powerful angels. 
I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God and you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Keep going. By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. We'll break that down. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor and I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. Verse 18. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by iniquity of your tra- the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. I devoured you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Let's go back and begin to break this down. Let's go back and look at, look at verse uh, 12. Start back at the, verse 12. Thus says the Lord your God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, Genesis tells us there were only four that were in Eden. God came down in the midst of the day to walk with them. There was Adam and Eve, and then the fourth one was Satan, who came in in the form of a serpent. We talked about that several weeks ago. So he's talking here about Satan, but he's going to show us Satan's origin. He was not always Satan. Every precious stone was your covering. So in Eden, when he came in there, before he took on the serpent's form, he was gorgeous. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond. In other words, he was glorious to look at. We don't know what all that works. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes, that implies music and worship. Many theologians believe that, this is Lucifer, by the way. Many theologians believe that Lucifer, at this role, was in charge of worship in heaven, which is why there's often so much trouble in worship teams. There's an old saying, that, and it's not here, is that when Satan, Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, he landed in the choir loft. <laughs> you were, you were per, what, the, uh, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created, is the next word, verse 14. You were the, anoint, the anointed cherub who covers. Again, a cherub is, this is, there's, I've got to summarize this down for you. There's strong evidence that he was one of several archangels. And that cover means he surrounded the throne. He was at the very presence of God around his throne worshiping. Gorgeous and beautiful, magnificent, like nothing we can imagine. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. I'm not sure what they are. They may have been angels, but fiery just means radiant with light and splendor. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created 
until iniquity was found in you. Stop there a second. If he's perfect, and he's in the presence of God, how can iniquity, this is so important, how can iniquity, this is an archangel. He doesn't have to pray by faith. He doesn't have to worship in the Spirit. He's face to face with God in all of God's glory and splendor and majesty. How can iniquity get in? That's what we're going to see. This is so important for us to see. Till iniquity was found in you. Verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Stop there a second. What is that talking about? Well, the word trading just means interacting in the Hebrew. It can mean all kinds of things. But somehow he was interacting, and most likely with other angels. And by the abundance of his activity, he became filled with violence. What does that mean? He was striking. No, violence is violence against God. Violence is the rebellion we're going to see. Within you, you became filled with violence, and then you sinned. What we're going to see this morning is sin has its roots not in our flesh, but its roots are in our heart. It's in rebellion. Therefore I cast you out as a profane thing. He went from being a holy thing to a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. Well, he still exists, but I destroyed him as he was. If anyone ever had it made, it was Lucifer. How could somebody in that position, seeing God as clearly as he saw him, worshiping God in in, in the most glorious splendor, how could some being fall that far? That's what we're going to see. Because that's how we can fall that far. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. I believe, my own belief is the fiery stones are the other angels. Your, look at this, we're talking about this morning, it's of the heart. Your heart became lifted up because of your beauty. Here's what happened. This is the most important thing you may ever learn here at Faith Christian Center. One of the most important things you'll ever learn is your life as a Christian. This is why the purpose of this message and then next week's message. Satan, Lucifer, had all of this going for him. And his heart became lifted up because of his own beauty. The only way, listen carefully, the only way he could notice his own beauty would be to take his eyes off of God's beauty. And his beauty did not come from him. It was a reflection of God's beauty. A diamond, a topaz in the dark doesn't emit any light, does it? But all a diamond, a topaz, a sapphire, all the beautiful stones do is take the light that comes in and reflect it back out. So all of his beauty, all of his power, all all of it was simply reflections of the one 
in whose presence he stood. But he began to take his eyes. We don't know how. Maybe slightly, slowly at first. Maybe come back from church service. I know that's not what it is. And say, you know what? I did pretty good this morning. Those feet look pretty nice up there this morning. You know? I did okay. Huh? And then start talking to some people and say, you know what? Oh, you're pretty good. You know what? I am. Never dreaming that would come to the place of thinking he was above God. His heart, his heart. Remember, what he, where, remember where he put into, 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 into Judas? He put it into his heart. Remember what we're told to guard with all diligence? Our heart. Because what he... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. You... Oh, you corrupted your wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. But we can corrupt the wisdom God gives us. We can corrupt anything God gives us. You corrupted your wisdom. Why? For the sake of your splendor. So you turned the wisdom that I gave you for covering the throne. You turned the beauty that I gave you to reflect my glory out. You took it and you used it for your sake. For your splendor. And what did I do because of that? I cast you to the ground. That's the earth. Now it doesn't tell us here, but there are other scriptures that tell us that Satan was so anointed, and we'll see that in the next verses we look at, so anointed, he convinced, think of this, one third of the angels to follow him. We're not talking about a church split where nobody knows what's going on. We're talking about a split in heaven where everybody can see openly who God is, but they started following somebody who began to put himself in front of God and was capable by his anointing to convince. That's why you've got to be very careful who you listen to and the spirit that's behind them. Ed Cole used to teach that. Whoever you listen to, and nowadays we got it all over the place. It's, it's all over our phones and internet and everything else. You can listen to anybody. And if you don't have some spiritual discernment, I'm going to say something else. If you're not undercover, if you're not under a spiritual authority, you're going to get deceived. And if you think you're not, you're already deceived. You're already listening to Him. It's why Paul talks to Timothy. He says, in the latter days, and I believe we're there, many are going to be deceived. Talk about Christians are going to be deceived. They're going to follow after itching ears. They're going to go listen to teachers that tell them what they want to hear. And nowadays, it's all over the place. You build a big church by making people feel secure and safe and comfortable all the way to hell. I laid you before kings. So he sent... Say, Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, sent to the earth, <clears throat> along with a third of the angels that rebelled with him. 
that they might gaze on you. Okay, now what we're going to do, let's go look at, um, <clears throat> at um, Isaiah. Isaiah 14. start in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Lucifer, the name Lucifer, one of the meanings is light bearer, day star, star of the morning. And I was looking at that yesterday and thinking about that. Isn't that interesting? Because Jesus is called, I am the light of the world. Lucifer was a light bearer. He bore God's light. He reflected God's light. Son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken nations. Verse 13. For you have said, look at there again, in your heart, you know your heart talks? Your heart talks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's in your heart, wait till something goes wrong and you'll find out what's in your heart. Wait till somebody says something about you. You'll find out what's in your heart. For you said in your heart, this is, we're looking back at now what, what happened inside of Lucifer when he did what we saw in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel we saw what he did. Now we're going to look inside of his heart. This is what happened inside of Judas. You said in your heart, I, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God are the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest side of the north. So he was looking at his beauty, forgetting it was reflection of the source of his beauty. Remember when the man came to Jesus and said, Good master, and, and before he go any further, Jesus said, No, stop a second. There's only one good. That's my father. In other words, the goodness you see in me comes from him. Jesus knew where his goodness came from. And when he began to look at himself, ambition began to rise. He began to think, Wait a minute. I have as much right to be in that position as God does. Now, I'm, I'm going to say, this is, I'm going to give you my opinion, because when I teach you, if it's something that's my opinion, I'll tell you that, because I could be wrong. My own view is that he was not trying to kick God off the throne. My view is he wanted to take the place of the Son of God. That's my own view. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Woo! How could he get to that place? Because he began to look at himself. And the moment he looked at himself, he began to think he was being deprived of something he was entitled to. We're going to see that again in a minute. I will be like the Most High. Verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest pits of the pit. 
Now, the interesting thing is there, let me go through it quickly. You don't have to go back and show this. I'm going to count what he says here. Verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend, number one, into heaven. Number two, I will exalt, number three, my throne above the stars of God. Number four, I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the night. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Number six, I will be like the Most High. In two verses... The first person personal pronoun, I or my, he says six times. Six times. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's all because of what he said in his heart. Now let's go to Genesis 3. He's kicked down to heaven. He's kicked down to earth. And God comes to create or recreate. There's, there are two theories on that I can't get into this morning. And we're going to read down through this. We went down through this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to go through that down this. Now, this is what's happened. So now we've seen what happened in heaven. We've seen this beautiful creation of God's, created to magnify Him and to glorify God, created to worship Him, began to get His eyes off of the one He reflected and begin to look at the reflection and think it was coming from Him. And the moment He looked at Himself, He began to think of Himself separate from God. And the moment He began to see Himself separate from God, He began to think that He was entitled to things that, he would not, that God would not give Him. So he had to do them for himself. Now that rebellious one's been kicked out of heaven, kicked to the earth. God comes, recreates the earth, and God creates his man and out of him the woman and puts them here, and God creates this beautiful garden and places them in there, and he gave them a job. We talked about that two weeks ago. So now we're going to see on chapter 3, this same Lucifer who's now Satan comes to try to destroy what God's recreating. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, I don't have time to get into it. We went to the woman for a reason. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? His opening salvo, his opening strategy is to simply get her to question what God said. That's all. This is the beginning of the downfall. It's so important that we understand these steps. It doesn't just happen. With Judas, it didn't just happen. He was going merrily along, loving Jesus, serving Jesus, and he turned the wrong way and zap, Satan got him. Because you'll think that can happen to you. People that were here years ago, people that were here late, and all of a sudden they're out somewhere, they're not even going to church. How can that happen? It didn't just happen overnight. They sat here and they allowed things to come into their hearts. I can tell when people are going to leave because there's a look they get. I can smell it. I don't mean them. There, there's, there's a, you, when you're a pastor, you, you, can, you can sense things. You can sense things. Several years ago, there was a young man who just, you know, I can tell he's going. I mean, just, you can see something got in his heart. He was listening to people that were not undercover. And he said, well, you know, 
the anointing's left here. I said, when was the last time you sat in the sanctuary? I didn't say this. Somebody else on staff said this to him. Because they'd been hanging out in the foyer because he was offended. But see, you'll only receive what your heart's open to receive. And the moment something like this gets in you, it turns everything you see around. And you'll begin to see in terms of what... But what I want you to see this morning, who's behind that? And I'm not speaking against anybody. We need to all be undercover. All undercover. Okay. Put the verse back up there. You can just keep them up there. We're looking at a strategy. So he begins to say... He starts to get us to question. To question. Does that mean, Pastor, we can never question things? No, but we can never question God. Does that mean that we can't ever question your judgments? No, because I'm not perfect. But the authority we can't question. See, if I'm under somebody's authority, whether they're right or wrong is God's business. God's very capable of dealing with that. But when you get somebody that's under the authority, starts questioning the authority, they're putting themselves over the authority, and they're putting themselves in God's place, and that's what Satan was trying to do. And that opens our heart the devil's very crafty. He doesn't just come, he didn't come up to Judas and say, Here, I'd like you to be the betrayer. I know it's prophesied there's a betrayer. You're the betrayer. Judas would have run away from that, I believe. He didn't realize how this happened. So Satan starts, this is why this story's in here. Has God indeed said? The indeed gets him to question it. Maybe, maybe that's not what God said. Maybe that's not what he meant. There's a wonderful, I'm gonna, uh, there's a wonderful, very simple de- definition of authority in the New Testament. It's the centurion in, in, in Matthew 8, 5. Centurion comes to Jesus and said, my servant lies at home suffering grief. Jesus said, I'll come. And he said, no, you don't need to come because I'm also somebody under authority. In other words, I, know, I recognize you're under authority because I'm under authority. And I'm also in authority, and I recognize you're in authority, so you don't need to come and do anything. You just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then he describes how he exercised authority. He said, when I say, when I say to one of my soldiers, go, they go. When I say come, they come. We don't have a discussion about what I meant. Go's real simple. G-O, go. They don't think, I wonder what he meant by that. I wonder what he was thinking about that. No, in the military, when they say go, you go. Authority, you either obey it or you disobey it. There's no discussion about it. We're talking about things that will save our lives. That's why they drill it into you in boot camp. That's why you have a drill instructor. instructor, instructor sometimes it feels like. Because out on the battlefield, that's not time to debate. I wonder what the sergeant meant by that. Do you really think he meant what he said? Maybe he's just having a bad day. You know, he's been kind of off lately. I don't know, you know, maybe I need to go to another platoon. You're going to die because you're going to stick your head up out of that foxhole looking around at the other platoon and you're going to get shot because you're out from underneath cover. Has he indeed said, not of every tree of the garden, verse 2. And the woman said, she's answering him. By the way, when... Satan talked to Jesus. We have a scene of that in both in Luke and in Matthew. How did Jesus respond to him? It is 
written. He didn't debate anything. He didn't discuss anything. He simply quoted God's word back to him. And Satan caught on to that. Because in one of the temptations, he quoted, Satan quoted God's word to Jesus to tempt him. And Jesus quoted God's word back because he knew the spirit of the word. The woman said to him, we may eat of the tree of the fruit of the gardens. See, she's trying to defend God here. That's not their call. So what does Satan do? But the fruit of the tree of the garden is the midst of the garden. God said, you shall not eat it or touch it lest you die. Verse 4. Now he's bold enough. He's, and the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. He's now directly contradicting God's word. And she accepts that. She's now, goodness, here's what he's after. He's trying to get her to do what he did in heaven. What did he do? Started by got his eyes off of God and got his eyes on himself. Once he got his eyes on himself, he began to think about what he was like and what he was entitled to. And then the next step is what God's not giving him that he was entitled to. And then the next step is, therefore, I ought to go get it myself. That's rebellion. But rebellion doesn't happen. It doesn't just happen. It happens because I start looking at myself and then I started questioning what God says. God knows that in the day, look at this, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen to what he's saying about God. First he said, God lied to you. Not only God lied to you, but God's deceiving you. God's holding something back from you you're entitled to. Because he knows that if you ate of that tree, you're going to be like him knowing good and evil, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He made them in his image. They already were like him. Verse 6. So when the woman saw... So God said... Don't eat it! God said, the ultimate authority said, don't eat it. Now because she's begun to think about what God said as questioning it, she's come out from underneath God's cover and now she's she's exercising her own independent judgment about what God said and what God, what's going to happen. So she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. So she's now beginning to rely more on what she sees than on what God said. She's beginning to... to the, the, she saw the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes. So her senses are now... She's already off. She's now beginning to be dominated by her senses more than what God said. That the tree was desirable to make oneself wise. So now she's choosing to be wise in her own eyes. She's choosing to take her own wisdom and be in charge of her own life. And so, having come to that place, now she acts on what was already in her heart. She took the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to Dumbo next to her, I mean her husband, and he ate it. 
I have no clue what he was doing there, but he wasn't doing his job. That much I know. Satan's trying to get them separated from God with pride by looking at themselves, by telling them God's keeping something from you. You could be like him, but he's trying to keep that from you. He's trying to create distrust in God and then to get them to start to trust in themselves. Let's go down and see what happens as a result of this. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. By the way, the last verse in chapter 2 says they were both naked and not ashamed. They were naked and weren't aware of it. Why? They were so caught up in who God is. They were so lost in who God is, so conscious of God, they were not conscious of themselves. That's the way God created them. And that's the way God's recreated us to be. And Satan's whole goal was to get them to become conscious of themselves because that's exactly what he did. He simply got them to do what he did, and we're going to see in a minute, that's what he's trying to get you to do also. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the cool of the day, which was his custom, and Adam and his wife now hid themselves from the presence of God. So instead of making them bold and like God, now they're afraid and they hide themselves. And man's been doing that ever since. So there's a sense of guilt now. And the Lord God's... Go back to verse 8. Okay, no, verse, verse 9, I'm sorry. And the Lord God called to Adam and says, Where are you? It's not because God had no clue. <laughs> He's asking for an accountability of where are you? And He's going to ask that of us too. So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Three big things there. Well, the first thing this rebellion brings in is fear. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about dealing with this fear. Christ came to restore it so we wouldn't have to be afraid. I was afraid because I was naked. So he's, he's a, here's where fear comes from. Fear comes when you see yourself separate from God. Because instinctively we know on our own we can't make it. On our own there are circumstances in this world that are bigger than us, let alone the eternal circumstances we can't handle. So we know instinctively we can't do this on our own, and yet there's a principle, the principle of Satan. He's deposited, we'll see, I'm getting ahead of myself, John, slow down. He's deposited on us so that we want to still do it our own way. So they were afraid because they were now conscious of themselves more than they were conscious of God, and as a result they hid themselves. Verse 11. God said, who told you you were naked? How would you figure this out? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12. And the man said, the woman... So there's the next thing. Refusal to accept responsibility. The woman you gave me gave it to me, the tree, and I ate. So there are only three here, God, and I'm the only innocent one. You gave her to me, and if it's not her fault, you're the one that gave it to her. I just ate. God didn't buy that then, and He doesn't buy it now. Back in Hebrew, when you, if you, in, in um, Romans 5, it talks about Adam's sin, different from Eve's sin. Eve's sin was she was deceived. Adam's sin is he violated a known command given to him. 
And this is the condition in which each of us were born. All of us were born out of Adam's seed. And the principle of Satan, the principle that was deposited in his heart when he began to look at himself is called rebellion. And this is what we're going to look at next week. Rebellion. Rebellion is the, is the root of all sin. Rebellion means I'm going, to be, I'm going to do things the way I want to do them. I'm going to exercise my own independent judgment over God's. God has His view, I have my view. In other words, God has His kingdom, I've got my kingdom, and I'm king in it. You can have, and by the way, you can have your kingdom. See, that's what the world's like today. You know, you can do whatever you want, just don't bother me. I've got my own kingdom, Nick has his kingdom. You've got your kingdom, we all have our own kingdom. And that's great, I love you having your kingdom. Because then you won't interfere with my kingdom, and neither of us will convict us that we're in rebellion, it's God's kingdom. But when we do that, we're in rebellion against the king. And we're going to see next week, in God's eyes, see, rebellion doesn't sound so bad, but the Bible says rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. And we're going to see a man next week that did that and ended up in witchcraft, an anointed king. This is life and death stuff. We're born in our flesh with this principle, which is why Jesus said in John 3.3, you must be born again. And the word again there means from above. We've got to move on quickly. Matthew 7. Well, Pastor, that's back in the garden. That's Old Testament. No, this is Jesus. These are some of the most important words I've ever read. Jesus, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21, says, Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Just because we call him Lord doesn't mean we've inherited the kingdom of heaven. This is, in my Bible, is in red. So Jesus said this. Those of you that haven't been around long, you won't understand that's a joke. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day. So there's a day coming. And we're going to give an account. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. We didn't, didn't we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many wonderful things in your name? Now look, we did wonderful things for you, for your kingdom. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Wait, 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 wait. How can we be calling him Lord, do wonderful things for him, and yet he says, I never knew you? How can, how can, how can, How can somebody have cast out demons, done wonderful things? Because the prince of demons can work through you to do that. Remember they said to Jesus, well, you're you're casting out demons by the devil. I never knew you. This is the key to it. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus defines his lordship. Jesus defines membership in the kingdom of God as the opposite of lawlessness. Lawlessness means I'm my own law. 
I make them. I know. I know what God says. I'm a, I come to church. I'm a Christian. I know what God says. But this is what I think. I don't agree with that. Then I'm my own law and I've got God's law over here and I've got my law over here. I'm exercising independent judgment about what God said. That's what Eve did in the garden. That's the principle of Satan that he sowed into their hearts because that's what he sowed in his own heart. That's the principle of Satan that he sowed into Judas's heart. And that's the principle he wants to sow in the church today and is sowing it in the church today. This is why we have disputes. There's one thing to disagree about things. It's another thing when it severs our relationship with one another. When Jesus' commandment is that we love one another, that we take up our cross daily and follow Him. And he follow, we followed Him to our cross where we die for ourselves, for what I think. Well, that person hurt me. Well, then die to it. Die to it. Envy, jealousy. One of the biggest battles pastors have is they find out somebody else's church is growing faster than theirs. It's like, well, what? And that's my flesh when that happens. I put it down. I don't let that thought in my mind because behind that thought is envy. And behind that thought eventually is bitterness. And I must guard my heart with all diligence because James tells me I have a greater accountability than you do because what I, what I have in my heart comes out on Sunday morning into your heart. And I've got to make sure I'm undercover so that I'm, I, I give you something that's coming out of a heart that's God's heart. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. We'll turn, show that here. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness. Sin is not smoking, drinking, cheating. Those are the fruit of sin. And we often try to deal with the fruit of sin and we never deal with the root of sin which is ultimately described by the Word of God as rebellion. Now, if you're feeling beaten down right now and you're dragging on the floor and your toes are all bloodied and black and blue, we'll pick you up. But you've got to come back next week. <laughs> this is where grace comes in. Grace doesn't allow us to be rebellious. Grace helps us out of the rebellion when we repent of it. And the process is always begins with repentance, something you don't hear much about in church anymore. But in the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his sermon and 3,000 got saved, the first thing they did was repented. And then they said, what must we do? Which is a sign of true Repentance. Next week we're going to look at some examples in the Old Testament especially of some men and some people that were, that were truly walked in the righteousness, truly walked with the right heart and others that started with the right heart and they didn't watch their heart and they let the principle of Satan, the principle of rebellion get sown in their hearts. Let's pray. Father, we've, we've heard some, some hard things this morning but it's so necessary for all of us, for me too.
Because we may even come to a place where we've got this pretty well established in our heart, but Satan never goes away, not in this life. He's always trying to sow the seeds of rebellion. And it never comes, Father, as rebellion. It always comes as questioning. It always comes as, I wonder why they did that. I wonder what their motive is. Maybe I can't trust them. Lord, open our eyes now as this word begins to settle in our hearts. (laughs) Not to look to the left or right. Not to think of someone that needs this message. But may our hearts truly be open to hear what your Spirit is saying to me, to each of us today. Holy Spirit, you are the gift of the grace of God to us to convict us, to strengthen us, to help us to change. Deliver us from ourselves. Because until we do that, we can't really worship. Because worship is seeing God for who He is. And until that time, we get in our own way. Deliver us, Lord, by Your Spirit. Amen. I want to, in this attitude, I want to just take a moment to be quiet. Let the...